0: So this is the introduction to a series that's going to be podcasted, it's going to be sent out week by week, but it comes under the title of Spiritual Formation, and um, I believe that uh, for me right now, I need it because it will help me create more margin in my life and more ability to pay attention to what God's doing, and I long for that. So um, we begin with this today. Uh, in front of Forge Church, but we realize that the reach for this, these podcasts and, and recordings go far beyond that, so we pray for you as well. Uh, we begin by saying, um, Lord, we need you. This past month, I heard again, and the upper word there is again, because I've heard it numerous, numerous times, uh, I heard an angry, fearful comment from a couple that were being interviewed, uh, and in their statements was the phrase, I would never bring, for, bring a baby into this world because it's just too crazy, too scary, too expensive. Now, uh, what does that tell us about the strength of our marriages? <clears throat> and what kind of hope does that express in the God who leads us as parents? The regular experience on those birthing events of babies is the labor and the delivery and I vividly recall the extended labor prior to the birth of our first son, Ben. Jan was two weeks late, and she was experiencing the beached whale syndrome. The month of June prior to her, to her giving birth, uh, we had been living in Cupertino for about six months, and, um, and it was really uncomfortably warm, and she was ready to deliver. So when, when labor started, you know, I, my, I jumped right in. You know, I drove her to the, to the hospital. I counted out the timing on the breathing between contractions. I put ice chips in her mouth. Um, I ate my snacks that she'd packed in the lunches. <laughs> um, I was there to take pictures. I have a great album of, of immediately seconds after birth kind of pictures. Black and white, mind you. But um, um, And in the middle of all that, over 40 hours of labor... I nearly finished a 900-page Michener novel. I I was exhausted. (laughs) Jan was beyond exhausted, but she was exultant in this new uh, infant that had sort of come into our life. We prayed for him, and here he was. So needless to say, Jan um, has been an awesome parent. Each son, in turn, has taken his place in the womb. And we watch them grow. For Ben, particularly, he's 40 this year, last year, and to go from a 22-inch newborn to a 74-inch adult—that's that, a transformation. <clears throat> um, my love for my wife has grown incrementally, exponentially, as each time she does goes through this. And then there's this picture of labor and delivery, but that's what I want us to look at <clears throat> because it it points at what we want to examine this afternoon. Uh, 18 months ago, we studied through the book of Galatians. So some of this is going to be very familiar, and some of it's going to be new. <clears throat> Paul is writing to the believers in Asia Minor, which is a central, the central states, if you will, in, uh, in, in the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. Today it's central Turkey. And he had been walking that road from the Mediterranean to the Black Sea, and preaching in the villages as he went, and as he led these people to Jesus, he did it by saying, this is Messiah, foretold from of old, birth, death, resurrection. This is Jesus, the promised one. And from the Jewish sector and from the pagan sector, people came together to trust in Jesus for their own relationship with God. Now, the problem was, Paul and the men with him would go out the north gate on the way to the Black Sea, and immediately through the south gate of that city would come the false teachers, the Judaizers. And they were the ones who came in and said, no, no, absolutely, it's not enough to trust in Jesus. You have to keep kosher. You have to practice circumcision. You've got to keep track of all those celebrations and new moons and festivals that are prescribed in the law. <clears throat> And they, they basically were saying, um, you want to keep God on your side. You want to work for a relationship with God. And Paul kept saying, you're, you need to concentrate on what God has already done for you. All that is past. And it's empty religion. So when he gets news that the new believers are wavering, they're considering going back to this empty religion, to the practice of, of Judaism, to the practice of of bowing down before idols that were present all over Asia Minor because they were they represented the demonic demonic forces that ruled over Galatia. He's he's really aghast that they that so quickly you know they they've turned away and so in Galatians um, 5 no 4, excuse me, 4:19 it says my children with whom I'm a, a, again in labor until Christ is formed in you I could but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. Okay? He's he's gotten the letters, he's gotten the concerns, and he's he's honestly going, Oh. So he uses very tender words here. It's the only place in any of his letters he uses this phrase, my little children. It's it's a tender parental thing. This great tenderness this is the bond of a parent who's helped bring these newborn ones to life in Christ. Now, the following phrase is vivid. Okay? Paul describes himself as being again in travail, again in labor, uh, begin in birth pay, again in birth pangs for those that he loves. To those who have given birth or have coached somebody through birth or heard about it, if you can get in touch with those moments and hours, days, and, and insert that word again into the picture... Where you're having to go through that travail process again to birth the same child. Painful? Yes, you and you mothers know. Worth it? Still, absolutely. Now look with me at the end of that phrase in verse 19, where it says, until Christ is formed in you. Paul defines the duration of this second set of birth pangs as being <clears throat> until when? And the until when is until Christ is formed in the Galatians, until Christ is formed in us. So once again, Paul reaches deep into the Greek classics, and he uses a construction that's very common to Plutarch, but appears nowhere else in the New Testament. And he chooses this uh, this word formed, uh, which is drawn out of the root morphe. Morphe is a Greek word that says it's it's, um, an outward expression of an inward reality. Here, Paul uses it in a construction that speaks of the process by which Christ is formed in the inner being, both for the Galatians and for us. Now, Paul knows that newborn ones in Galatia will not be vulnerable to all those false teachers once they get Jesus formed in their hearts. And this construction from Morphe speaks about those who actually do the work, the one who does the work. To cause this inward reality to become outward and visible and consistent. Now, it's not the individual who does that work, and it's not Jesus who does this work. But if we look at John 15 and 16, it is the Holy Spirit who places the knowledge of Jesus in the heart of each believer. Now, let's examine this together, all right? Think for a minute about the life of Jesus. I just picked six of these reflections, and they're on a piece of paper that I handed out to you. Uh, They're not not, uh, proscriptive. There's obviously many more descriptive phrases about the life of Jesus. But these six are the ones I want us to focus on because I think Paul's heart is informed by them. Number one, Jesus' relationship with the Heavenly Father informed and shaped his identity. Number two, Jesus' times of solitude and prayer refreshed him, informed his heart for daily priorities, and empowered his teaching on living in intimacy with the Father. Jesus' penetrating understanding of the scriptures gave boundaries to his life and authority to his words. Jesus' compassion and mercy flowed out of his life to needy people and set the stage for many of his miracles. Jesus lived out his life in community, surrounded by men and women to whom he committed a body of teaching and examples, and with it, a heart for the lost and dying world. And lastly, Jesus came to serve the will of the Father on behalf of all mankind, and a model of servant's heart that stretches all the way to us. Now, well, as I said, these these are just six brief descriptions and uh, not complete in it as an entity, but they're, they're a track we can run on today. And Paul in Galatians 4:19 is anguishing over these newborns because he wants this pattern life of Christ to be formed in them by the agency of the Holy Spirit. The operant word in that last phrase is might. Okay That, that says again. That might happen. They, the Galatians might respond to that, or they might not. We might respond to that fully, or we might not. Okay? And it comes to us, here you go, grammarians, it comes to us in the subjunctive mood. All right? Some of us struggle with English, much less Greek grammar. So if you understand that, you elbow somebody next to you and grin. If you don't understand that, you just go, uh, tell me, okay. So the subjunctive mood is one that includes a question. It it says it's a verb construction that tells there's a condition attached to the fulfillment of the forming of Christ in the Galatians themselves. So it's conditional. And do you know what that condition is? Okay, well, what's left? The Spirit is sent from the Father to make Jesus known in the heart and the life of the believer. The Spirit of God is permanently implanted into the heart of each believer on conversion, Romans 8, 26, and 27 says that the Spirit is constantly in communication with the Father, especially when we run out of words. <clears throat> What's left is the personal heart component that is left up to each one of us. The subjective moon reveals that we may or may, we may not respond to all that God has accomplished within us. It is this question mark that hovers over this passage in Galatians. And it's a question for the Galatians, and it's a question for us. To the end that the Galatians make a choice to cooperate with the Spirit in the formation of Christ in their heart and lives, Paul then follows in the next chapter twice, and he says in 5.16 and 25, walk by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. Now, remember the Galatians were being urged away from a life of empty religion, and Paul recognizes that nature abhors a vacuum. If you take off something, you stop doing something, you turn away from something, you need to fill it with something, and, and in this case, something righteous. Okay, he's asking these new believers to turn away from working for their standing with God to a whole new basis. The basis is relying on the indwelling spirit. What might that reliance on the spirit look like? Making sure that no empty religion creeps in. So that's that's the question that's here. What is it going to be, Galatians? Okay. So years ago, I was uh, I was able to purchase a Mac Plus computer. Ian remembers. It looks like six half gallon milk cartons all strapped together. Okay, and it had a massive five by seven inch screen. It was and at the time. It was awesome. It was an awesome tool. I wrote a master's dissertation, master's thesis on that thing. Um, <clears throat> Part of the software menus that came with that had a toggle and a little pull-down sub-menu that said I could choose which printer, which keyboard, which monitor I was going to use. It was called a chooser. Okay. <clears throat> Within each of us is our heart as well, we're, we're the in the center of life it's our it's our mind and emotions that call out for decisions and choices to be made. Now remember that what Paul is carefully setting up here in Galatians four nineteen is the necessity for the believers to choose to be open to the work of the Spirit as the Spirit attempts to form the heart and life of Christ in them and in us. What then might I choose to include in my priorities and in my inner life so that the Spirit can continue to form Christ in me? So if I use those six descriptive areas that I passed out to you, As a possible pattern To start down the track Of spiritual formation Here are some suggestions Okay, number one First, Jesus knew that he was in a relationship with the Father In the Gospels His coming birth is announced separately To Mary and to Joseph by angelic messengers And, And he is to This child is to be the son of the Most High Emmanuel God with us Yeshua Meaning God saves. Recall the incident for the 20, excuse me, the 12-year-old kid, the 12-year-old boy, Jesus, who comes with his parents to Jerusalem for worship celebration. They came for a celebration in Jerusalem. And then the Nazareth-bound caravan departs. And Mary and Joseph are busy with their friends and they talk all day long and they expected that uh, Jesus is behind them in the train or ahead of them in the train of people moving back to Nazareth. And they, they come to the end of the day and everybody's laying out pallets and sleep and little food's being prepared and they look and they can't find him. He's not with them. Pre-dawn, the following morning, they're busting it south. They're going back to Jerusalem and they search for the boy Jesus. Where did they find him? The text says they found him in the temple courts and when he gets there he says, you know, Mary says well, we're looking all over for you and his response to her was why is it that you were looking for me did you not know I had to be in my father's house some 18 years later Mark chapter 1 records a scene at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist where heaven opens as Jesus comes up out of the water and the spirit like a dove descends upon him and a voice came out of heaven, quote, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So as Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, he often referred to the heavenly Father. And in Luke 11, he teaches his disciples to address, to address God in prayer as their Father as well. John 17 records Jesus' prayer to the Father on behalf of his followers Immediately followed by a prayer in Gethsemane because, man, it's happening. You know, he is being betrayed at that moment, and he's crying out to the Father. And then his final anguished words on the cross, all of that is addressed to the Father. The scripture records that from the end of childhood into manhood, ministry, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension back to the Father, Jesus constantly refers to his identity In relationship with God. So here we go. Since Jesus knew who he was. In relationship to the father. So might we. The scriptures speak of us. As children of our heavenly father. Sons and daughters of the king. But for some who have come to life. Wounded by parents. The parent metaphor for God doesn't work for them. I commend to you, if you've got those wounds, uh, those wonderful resources in the Old Testament where God is referred to and lifted up as El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one, as Yahweh Roi, the God who heals you, as Yahweh Shalom, the God who is peace, as Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord my shepherd, as Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner, and on and on. What a wonderful thing it is to pray to this God who parents us in a whole way. One of the great strengths of this fellowship is the strong positional teaching that's poured out Sunday after Sunday over years. <clears throat> You've been taught who you are in Christ and how the Father sees you now and affirms your new spiritual identity as followers of Christ. Call on the Heavenly Father to reap parent you in such a way that you have an internal surety, a heart compass that constantly points to an identity in Christ. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit in remaking your identity as Christ is formed in you. Secondly, the gospel records that Jesus kept time for himself to be alone with the Father. He would spend nights alone in conversation with God, especially after exhausting days in ministry or in anticipation of the demands of the following day and decisions, the desperate need for wisdom. Before Jesus chose from his followers the 12 who would be with him in ministry, he spent the night in prayer. After full days of healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God, he'd send away the multitude. Instead of saying, hey, wait, hold on, guys, I'll be right back. It was he sent them away. He dismissed them, and then he would retreat to be alone with the Father. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had taken his disciples again into that garden to pray, anticipating what was coming in the next hours. Those times of intimate, two-way communication sustained Jesus, refreshed Jesus, Informed Jesus. Remember, you know, they said, Jesus, eat something. You must be hungry. He said, No, I have bread you know not of. I've been with the Father. I'm full. Okay? He spoke out of the fullness of being loved by the Father. His times of solitude, of listening, of being with the Father allowed him to speak from the heart about the necessity to draw near to God, to obey God, and to relate to God as Father. Since Jesus regularly sought times of solitude, of reflection with the Father in prayer, so might we. Here, our culture hammers us into its mold with a nearly pathological aversion to silence. Ringtones, okay? Office music, you know, stereo system in vehicles and elevators and homes and even at the gas pumps. Somebody's talking me at the gas pump. And and we go to the beach or we go camping and we fill it with audio and video out in the wilderness. Silence, it's alien ground. And yet, our Savior saw listening, interactive prayer with the Father as an absolute essential. Most of us have learned to pray by mimicking the prayers that we've heard from someone else. Great way to begin. Okay? The, The Lord God blesses those beginning prayers <clears throat> but if you were in a relationship with a husband or a wife, a roommate parents, teachers, boyfriend girlfriend, boss and you ran through the same laundry list of bedroom bathroom, kitchen, relationships problems, day after day after day same, you know, what the what the Indonesians say is sama sama, same thing all over again, the same stuff doubled up those relationships probably would, would harden. They'd, they'd become calcified. You'd turn to concrete. And so in much of the same way, when we come with formula prayers and prayers that are lorded with petition and intercession, uh, we don't grow much beyond that point. Similarly, if we remain in that place of, of just repeating it back to God, oh, that's new, I can repeat that, You know, we, but we borrow from somebody else. We repeat that, but it is isn't rising out of our own heart. When do we wait on God to impress on us his mind and his heart? So through recurring dry spells, and I've had them, okay? The Lord has been teaching me about the limits of my words, my agendas, my prayer forms. He's been gently adding to them some new ways of praying that include silence and listening, adoration and praise from the heart, but not with my mouth. Those prayer forms leave space for God to participate, to speak, to impress, to illumine, to remind, to awaken. When I listen in prayer to the results is, you know, is the beginning of of integration to what is in my head with what is in my heart. I commend that kind of search for intimate silence and listening prayer with the Father. You cooperate with Holy Spirit in the remaking of your prayer life and appreciation of silence as Christ is formed in you. Third, from the end of childhood... Jesus evidenced penetrating insight into the scriptures. That can be said of some of our youth here at Forge as well. Three weeks ago, Jonathan just interrupted us and said, half of us here at Forge are youth and children. Honestly, he hadn't paid attention. I mean, he got it exactly right. Earlier, I referred to the uh, event about the boy Jesus, who was found by his parents in the temple by Mary and Joseph. The verses just prior to that, to his answer to his parents, records what he was doing in the temple courts. It says he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, that first observation that Jesus was listening speaks of humility, of knowing his place, and being a learner, having a learner's heart, being teachable. But that business of asking questions, that does not compute in our, in our culture. And I'm sure you've heard this before. But in that culture, only the most learned asked the questions. So you recall that the, the um, scribes and Pharisees would come to Jesus and they'd try to trap him. They would try to ask him questions. What do you say about this? What do you think about that? And his response was consistently You know, you answer my question first, and then I will answer yours. Classic rabbinical discourse. And they could not answer his question or would not answer his question. The key is to be able to ask the right questions. So from early years, Jesus evidenced not only a precise knowledge of scripture, but keen insight into the heart of the matter that the text was talking about. This knowledge and insight comes into play when confronted with Satan in the wilderness. Three times he's put to the test. Very subtle temptations with hidden agendas. And three times, it's recorded in Matthew 4, Jesus responds with both head knowledge and heart insight. Scriptures formed boundaries for his life. And by knowing and keeping the law, no charge could be brought against him. He lived a blameless life. Out of his own understanding of the text and the heart of the good news that he was proclaiming regarding the kingdom of God, Jesus could speak with authority to the intellect. Out of his obedience to God, Jesus could speak with authority to the heart. Since Jesus knew the scriptures and lived them out, so might we also choose to lay up scripture. And wisdom and insight in the heart. <clears throat> Again, one of the pronounced strong points of this ministry in Ford's church is the clear teaching and preaching of the scriptures. So over the last five years, you know, you've had Ben and Ian and Kevin and Janice and myself. Jen and Jen. And Stephanie. Thank you. You know, shared leadership, shared input, shared gifting. Okay. So we praise God for the teachers as a resource to us as part of the body of Christ. That style of teaching where you say this is what it is, this is what it means, this is how you, you, you grapple with it. How do, we, how do we understand this? How do we de- apply this? That's, that's great foundational stuff. And it's provide feeding for us all. Now in reality, the airwaves are filled with good teaching daily over the broadcast in in all forms of broadcast you know whether it comes out of you know Bethel TV or out of the radio right? there's excellent stuff to be had <clears throat> that downside risk in our midst might be the tendency for us to rely on others to feed us we may over time grow entirely comfortable with passively receiving and not processing we may over time end up with heads that are full of knowledge and our hearts in a different place altogether the body of Christ suffered greatly in this nation in the decades of the 80s and 90s because great men of God leading great ministries uh, made radically wrong moral choices, and, the, and they were blasted in the media. The problem wasn't that they didn't know it was true, but the, but the head didn't make the choice. The heart made the choice. So they're walking around, if you will, disintegrated. They knew a ton, but then you got to process it and, and obey it. So the antidote all of that is to regularly seek the presence of the Lord on the individual level with an open Bible in your hand. Okay? And when you come before him, you ask him for insight, for illumination, for application, and the strength to obey. When that application is played out in consistent obedience to the Father, then we too will be able to speak and live with authority. Cooperate with Holy Spirit in the remaking of your study and the application of the scriptures as Christ is formed in you. Fourth, Jesus' compassionate heart prompted him to respond to needy, broken people. People came to Jesus crying out. Remember Bartimaeus? Master! Lord, you know, the cry from the crowd, you know, to get his attention, to get him to come close. Bartimaeus was blind, couldn't seek him out. He just knew by the sound of the crowd passing, he's about there. And sometimes Jesus would look through the crowd and he'd lock eyes with a Zacchaeus. And he'd say, I'm coming to your house today. Sometimes needy people were brought to Jesus to test him, to try and see if they could catch Jesus in some fault or failure. And Jesus, time after time, faced with demonic influence, disease, congenital deformity, and worse, in the lives of people, he moved toward them, called them to him, asked them questions, touched them, and healed them. Our brother David Hogan has a great great story to tell about sitting with a man who had leprosy. And he didn't just pray for him. He laid hands on him. And he said, my hand sunk into him. It was that gushy. Okay. And yet the man was healed. The man was raised up, made whole, healed in Jesus' name. Okay. Jesus also saw hurting hearts and went to supper at the home of Matthew, the quizzling tax collector. Jesus was known to frequently spend time with with sinners. And when challenged by the religious authorities for his unfortunate choice of morally challenged table mates, Jesus' response was, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He was completely untouched by the arguments of the religious majority, if you will. Those he healed were not just some object lesson from which to springboard in his teaching ministry. It wasn't a media play. It wasn't a power trip. Those healed ones were not treated casually. Mark chapter 5, an untouchable woman who had no place in that crowd. She took her life in her hands to be in that crowd. Long-term hemorrhage and poverty drove her to come up behind Jesus in the crowd at the sandal level. So, and she's saying to herself over and over again, if I could just get there, if I could just touch the hem, the tassels that dangle at the bottom of his robe. I will be healed. And she does it, and Jesus knew that virtue poured out of him. God had done something awesome, and he wasn't even aware of it. And he stops in this rubbing, bumping, shoving multitude that's crowding toward another ministry assignment, and he turns around, and he says, who touched me? And there you have Peter going, Jesus, dude, we're all touching you. That, he just ignores Peter. And what he goes for is, who was it that, was, that touched me? And the woman comes and kneels down and confesses, but she had experienced an instantaneous healing by faith. He doesn't dismiss her. He honors her personhood and, and her rudimentary faith. His compassion would not allow even one such to slip away unnoticed. He healed the blind, he cured the lepers, he forgave sinners, he straightened deformed limbs, he cast out demons, wept at graveside with bereaved families and raised their dead. Because his heart was engaged. Now, since Jesus' heart was touched by the plight of the broken and the wounded, the diseased and disenfranchised, so might our heart be touched. The followers of Jesus, through history, have historically been the front lines of the fight against disease, inhumane treatment, slavery, injustice, etc. And, and they have led in the care of abandoned children, unwed mothers, the insane, the hungry, the poor, those ensnared in, in human trafficking, and the refugee. That's much less apparent about the church of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the 21st century. The church abandoned the moral high ground of mercy and compassion to bureaucrats 90 years ago when the federal government stepped in and said, we'll fund this. We can organize programs. We can do health care. We can feed people. And what's left to us? To write safe checks. And know in our heart that everything will turn out okay. Okay. We're left with a tax deduction, but not the heart of Christ. It is an axiom in communication and in ministry that we must often earn the right to be heard. And if we wonder why it's not true that we're overwhelmed, we're flooded with people in our churches, it may be because we've not earned the right to speak or even to hug those people. Perhaps what we're not doing speaks louder than what we say. If anything, the North American church finds itself all too often in the role of the scribe that asks Jesus, So, who is my neighbor? We're surrounded by aching, hurting people who won't look you in the eye unless it's over the top of a, of a 24-ounce cup filled with change. And they're shaking it in your face asking for a donation. And those, there are those around us who are so hurting That they anesthetize their pain with all forms of addictive behaviors, sexual games, musical chair relationships, amassing stuff and living on the edge of adrenaline and caffeine. Who but Holy Spirit can implant within us, can form within us the heart of Jesus for the blind, the broken, the lost. Read the Gospels to see Jesus in compassionate action. Ask him to act through you. Cooperate with Holy Spirit in the opening of our eyes and the tenderizing of your heart and the engagement of your life with the hurting as Christ is formed in you. Fifth, Jesus initiated and fully entered into a community whom he called, equipped, and sent to a lost and dying world. Jesus was not a lone ranger, a wild-eyed prophet with rank B.O. that nobody loved. He was was not a lone ranger in this at all. His ministry was spent with a tight group of men and women who couldn't get enough of him. They wanted more of him. Jesus believed that truth was both taught and caught. To that end, he selected 12 men out of that band of followers to be with him in ministry, to pour out their heart and their life, to model discipleship and spiritual direction with him. And of those select followers, he charged 11 of them to be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Since Jesus lived in community, ministered in community, and sent a community of followers to the world, so might we too become that accountable and motivated. We who have come to be believers of Jesus by faith have been gifted by Holy Spirit and placed strategically here at the edge of the continent in San Mateo County in Forge Church. We're all members of the body of Christ, the Church International. Now ask yourself, if Jesus called men and women to faith in him, placed them in the group accountability, equipped them for ministry, and sent them to a needy world. How are we doing? Jesus mentored his men. He discipled them to lay within them spiritual foundations. He asked questions of them to help them discern for themselves the activity of God in their lives. <clears throat> if you've not yet sat in such a relationship of being discipled or having a spiritual director in your life, please enter into those accountability settings. The downside risk of such great fellowship and accountability is that we might stand pat. Now picture history, if you will. Just roll backwards to 33 A.D., Realizing the world as it was known in the ancient world to what it is now has been radically changed by the message of Jesus Christ and salvation that's free. Now picture what would happen if you have disciples, 120, gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem waiting and the room is filled with a mighty rushing wind and there are flames, flaming tongues of fire and they're in the flow of the Holy Spirit and there's awesome accountability and fellowship and they lock the door and they never Went to the street they never announced the risen Jesus in Jerusalem Judea Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth that's a sobering thought now think with me about our upper room temptations do we really have a heart for our neighbors our cities our in-laws our outlaws our co-workers our communities state the nation hemisphere you know or people that we'd love who are Pouring it out for Jesus someplace else. See, there's, at last count, 63 language groups in San Mateo County. And, And there's obviously Muslim refugees who filter in, and there's Hindu engineers that are present. They come to us. Who but Holy Spirit can plant within us the longing and passion of Jesus for those who have never yet heard his name with any understanding that he died for them. He loves them and he's calling them to him so that they can get to the Father. Cooperate with Holy Spirit in drawing you into accountability and extruding you to ministry for his name's sake, for the world's sake as Christ is formed in you lastly Jesus came time, space, history he was a real birth in Bethlehem he was raised partly in Bethlehem partly in Egypt, partly in Nazareth he was a real person okay but he came to be the final full sacrifice to wipe away all penalty for sin for those of us who believe in him to accomplish that he did he not only had to live perfect sinless life he had to choose to be the sacrifice choose to serve the wishes of the father over his own agendas his own desires his own timing Jesus was the suffering servant foretold by Isaiah the life and teaching of Christ is marked indelibly with the role of a servant Paul amplifies that role in his words to the Philippian church recorded in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. He says, Have this attitude within yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Since Jesus came to serve the will of the Father, to reach us, to embrace us, to make us acceptable to a righteous and holy God, might we too choose to be servants of one another and of the kingdom of God as Christ is formed in you. See God has placed faithful men and women. Around us in forged church. In shared leadership. Who often are in labor, labor pains. There's some travail. As we as we are engaged with people. And say turn the corner. Get it. Go on to the next level. Grow up. Have Christ formed in you. Now. On the receiving end of that, as you work that, as you seek that, to have Christ formed in you, some of that will feel like birth trauma. Some of that's got to hurt because you're shifting levels. You're going where you've never gone before. Paul's word in Philippians chapter 1, 6 will anchor you. Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's working in you to that point. Then there will be joy like that of holding a newborn in your arms. Worth it? Absolutely. May you choose this day to cooperate with and yield to the deep work of Holy Spirit within you so that the heart of Jesus might be formed in you and his life might be seen by all.